1: Asia-Pacific Currents.
0: News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region.
2: We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the
1: protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On
2: Community Radio 3CR. Workers
3: of the world should unite to fight this 3D
1: capitalists? Brought to you by Australia-Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday the 9th of April. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Jodie Paskett. And it is the first week of school holidays for anybody for whom that is relevant information. (laughs) It's very relevant. Um. Uh, and of course, coming up in the second part of today's show, uh, we'll be speaking with Nick McClellan, who is just our resident Pacific area expert. Of course, we want to talk about this um, uh, security cooperation agreement between Solomons and China and what that means for um, the world uh, the world order. Um, but we will go into news from around the region in just a minute. There is a very significant story that unfortunately we haven't quite written up yet, which is the release of all of the refugee prisoners held in the Park Hotel um, and the significant speed with which uh, refugees who are in indeterminate visa status in Australia are being um, sent to other other parts of the world or being reintegrated into the Australian community. So uh, we did speak with Aaron Mulvaganam last week on the program, who gave us a little bit of an update about that. But of course, a significant update is that they've all been released now from onshore and offshore detention centres in Australia. So I actually want to acknowledge and congratulate all of the refugee activists in this country who fought that long, hard, painful fight uh, for such a long time. Well done to all of those comrades. Two minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents, and we're going to go into news from around the region. We'll kick off in Indonesia where 11 mine workers were injured in a truck crash at the Nickel Mine site of PT Indonesia Weda Bay Industrial Park, or IWIP. Um, the, this industrial park is located in North Maluku Island, and this accident happened or this um, industrial murder happened on the 2nd of April or in industrial disaster because they uh, they didn't die. The 11 workers were injured. Following an initial investigation by the union, the relevant union, which is called the Indonesian Metal Workers' Union, the cause of the accident is believed to be brake failure. The dumping truck driver lost control and crashed into two other dumping trucks, resulting in 11 workers being seriously injured. During the investigation, mine workers at PT IWIP, which is the, the mine, the in Indonesia Wada Bay Industrial Park, Um, They said that the company forced drivers to meet high targets or they would be punished. It's believed that the dumping truck was at full speed when the accident happened. The hasty, profit-oriented culture has led to preventable equipment failure and accidents. The Indonesian Metal Workers Union is demanding that the mine owners take full responsibility for the accident and make adequate compensation to the injured workers. The union is urging the company to provide health and safety training for all mine workers and conduct regular inspection on machinery and equipment. The Occupational Safety and Health Committee must also function effectively to avoid future failures.
2: All right, now we're moving to India where more than 200 million workers joined the two-day nationwide strike on the 28th and 29th of March under the banner of Save the People and Save the Nation. The Joint Forum of Central Trade Unions, consisting of central trade unions and independent sectorial federations, called the strike in protest of the government's anti-worker, anti-farmer and anti-people policies. Trade unions have been campaigning for workers' rights that are under severe attack in India's current anti-labour policy regime. The joint platform called the strike to protest against the privatisation of the public sector, the national policy of monetising public sector land assets, the new labour law reforms promoting precarious employment and the attacks on workers' constitutional and de- democratic rights. Unions across the country organised joint rallies, gate picketing, roadblocks, blocks, and public meetings in support of the strike. Bank services and public transportation were severely affected. Workers from various steel, coal, oil and metal factories down tools. A large group of coal workers participated in the general strike, showing their dissatisfaction against the government's policy to privatise coal mines. So um, solidarity with those 200 million workers in India.
1: And moving now to Bangladesh. A worker at Kabir Steel Shipbreaking Yard in Bangladesh has been physically assaulted after protesting against being unfairly fired. In February, the cutter at Kabir Steel Shipbreaking Yard was sacked without a written order. Despite interventions by the union, which is the Bangladesh Metal Workers' Federation, management refused to reinstate him. The BMF, uh, which is the Bangladeshi Metal Workers' Federation, then lodged a formal complaint with the Department of Inspection for Factories and Establishments, DIFE or DIFE. Angered by the worker's action of complaining to the dyfe, management abused him and, according to the worker, also physically assaulted him. Dyfe recommended that the union and the employer try to settle the matter. After a bipartite meeting on the 15th of March, management apologised to the worker and agreed to compensate him by the 20th of March. The employer also took responsibility for the assault. There has been several accidents at the Kabir Steel shipbreaking yard due to the unsafe working conditions. On the 31st of January, a worker was killed while working at the yard at night. Local press report that the Ministry of Industry ordered a temporary closure of the yard as a worker's death created negative perceptions about the ship recycling industry in home and abroad and of course we know that um the the attempts to supposedly sanitize this industry through um granting compensation to just one worker and apologizing for just one experience of assault um defies the uh, countless reports and knowledge we have of the ship industry which is incredibly violent incredibly dangerous and the workers are regarded as very very um expendable
2: mm, yeah all right now we're back home in australia um and the maritime union union of australia has reaffirmed its support and solidarity with first nations people throughout australia by sand standing beside the gomeroy people in opposition to coal seam gas in the pillager the Gomeroy Nations meeting was held last week in Tamworth to discuss a proposal from gas giant Santos to sink 850 coal seam gas wells in the pillager. The plan was almost un- unanimously opposed and the union calls on gas giant Santos to respect the outcome of the vote and withdraw their plans to mine the pillager. Members of the MUA rank and file met with Gomeroy people in Tamworth in the lead up to the vote to express their steadfast support of the Gomeroy nation's right to oppose the Santos proposal. The Maritime Union Sydney branch, Secretary Paul Keating, reaffirmed the Union's solidarity with First Nations people and supported the position adopted by the MUA's rank and file membership in supporting in opposing, sorry, Santos plans.
1: And our last story for the morning comes from Hong Kong, where the National Security Police raided the offices of the disbanded Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, arresting four former leaders and searched their homes. The union activists detained and interrogated were the former chairperson, Zhou Wong, the former vice chairperson, Leo Tang, the former treasurer, Chong Chong Fai, and the former general secretary, Lee Chuk Yan who all remain in prison for their trade union activities. We'll do our best to follow up these um, comrades. We, as listeners will know, we... Uh, Asia Pacific Currents and Australia-Asia Worker Links um, has a long association with the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions Mm -hmm. and unfortunately that um, confederation didn't really survive the um, yellow umbrella movement and um, the complicated politics Mm -hmm. uh, in relation to China and imperialism and I, I guess the precursor to what we're seeing now with a realignment of world order. Um, But we will try and speak with those comrades if we can get in touch with them. Of course, we're going to continue this discussion about the realignment of world order in the second part of the show when we speak to Nick McClellan um, about the uh, draft security cooperation agreement between the Solomons and China. That is coming up next. But we'll go to some community announcements. (laughs) I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now.
3: We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now.
0: Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let-it-rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in Parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe, to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win.
1: Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter.
2: It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunna and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded.
0: Come to me, lover, I've secrets to tell Hi, we're Dash. And you're listening to Three C R Community Radio.
1: Come to me sweetly this love of great You're listening to Community Radio Three CR, this is Asia Pacific Currents. It is thirteen minutes past nine o'clock. A draft security cooperation agreement between the Solomons and China would allow Beijing to send military forces and ships to the small Pacific Island state. The Online leaking of the draft agreement two weeks ago was met with immediate uproar in Canberra, Wellington and Washington. And China has remained conspicuously silent on the Russia-Ukraine war. Joining us, on this, uh, joining us this morning is Nick McClellan, our Pacific Area expert, to discuss what all of this means for the region and the world. Welcome, Nick.
3: Good morning. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. So how do you read the developments of this security cooperation agreement?
3: Look it's a significant development but it's not exactly as it's been represented in the uh, particularly the Australian media and when you listen to and read the commentary from Solomon Islanders they're much more focused about the domestic implications related to policing and government transparency than to the perception that Solomon Islands will um, allow a military base to be uh, built in the Solomon Islands. You know, Australian media commentary has really highlighted this angle that China has bought uh, its way into establishing a military presence there. But that's, I think, over-egging it. And indeed, key Solomon Islands correspondents like Tassissius Kapitalaka, Transformakarau, uh even the opposition leader... Um, all say that they don't think that there will be a Chinese military base in Solomon Islands. So it's important to step back and actually look at what the agreement says, and particularly areas like uh, the presence of police, which is, in fact, of more concern to Solomon Islanders.
1: Well, we spoke to you last year in November around the time of the attempted coup. And at this time, we saw that part of the reason for political unrest was the supposed switching of diplomatic ties from Taiwan to Beijing and we saw that China provided law enforcement support at this time. So this is what you're referring to. Um, and that the agreement, the current agreement, has significant provision for China providing law enforcement, additional policing, um, police training, etc. But even this incident, I still think, is a, is a of global concern or, or linking back to the issue that I raised, which is is a part of the realignment of world order, because the person who launched that attempted coup was Daniel Su- Sudani. He being the premier of Malatai province, he still maintains economic links with Taiwan. How, I mean, are, are these politics playing out in the Solomon Islands? Are they playing out in the world?
3: Absolutely. Look, the geopolitical tensions, um, particularly US-China tensions in the uh, Asia-Pacific region, uh, are very much part of this picture. And um, the leading Solomon Island scholar, Tarsius Kapatalka, wrote last week, and I quote, The rhetoric, posturing and symbols of geopolitical competition have been appropriated by Solomon Island actors on both sides uh, with long-standing domestic political tension. So people are worried that the clash of the major powers is being played out at local level. And as you say, um, um, Premier Suudani of, of uh, Malaita province has been allied with Taiwan for many years, received significant funding, $25 million from U.S. funding um, last year. And uh, you know that's in tension with the national government under Prime Minister Sogavari. Um, We're seeing this across the region and key leaders like former Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Dame Meg Taylor, and the current Secretary-General, Henry Pooner, have both expressed concern that the geopolitical tensions that are playing out um, are impacting uh, the region and particularly diverting attention from the core security concerns that are often raised by Pacific Island governments and the most important of those is about security related to climate change and the existential threat that global heating is bringing to uh, countries across the region.
1: That's a it's a really good point that you raise and I mean one of the things that I wanted to discuss today was that there are a bunch of issues that are being Drowned out because of uh, because of the war and the realignment of, of of global politics. You mentioned climate change, but also COVID. I mean, we know that the Solomon Islands is really suffering um, in relation to the spread of COVID in, in the island. Uh, and some people would argue that COVID or pandemics are a natural consequence of climate change and and what we're doing to the planet. I mean. Can you, do you know what is happening in relation to COVID in the Solomons or is information just not coming out because of the security issues?
3: Look, it's, it's um, you know, just not on the agenda publicly uh, in, the, in the regional media and that's a major concern because these global challenges around climate change, around COVID and COVID recovery are very important. You know, there's been variable access to um, vaccinations against uh, the, the coronavirus. And Solomons was, um, um, because it's quite a big country by Pacific standards and uh, uh, with a lot of isolated islands, has had relatively low um, coverage. Um, Some countries like PNG have got, you know, well into the 90s percent double-backed and they're into booster shots. That's not the case in the Solomons. And having avoided the pandemic for a long time with um, closed borders, now that Solomons has opened up to a certain extent, there has been a surge of... uh, coronavirus uh, with a number of cases and this is a problem across the region that um, more than two years of lockdowns, of uh, a loss of tourism, um, stress on supply chains and so on has led to incredible budgetary pressures on um, uh, the health system. Uh, so workers, nurses, doctors, um, uh, medical assistants in the health system are under significant stress because of existing health burdens but um, the, the the work around the pandemic uh, just adds to that. Um, so there are there are many challenges, and Pacific Island governments have been very critical about the geopolitics um, of COVID also playing out. For example, there's been at sometimes really frankly a level of competition between donors about the supply of vaccines, um, with China, Taiwan, Australia, France, and others uh, um, providing vaccines to their partners and allies in the region. Um, You know, there's a lot of criticism from Pacific Island governments about the failure of major powers to waive intellectual property uh, um, patents over vaccinations, uh, COVID vaccines that are of vital importance for, for these poorer developing countries. So Fiji, Vanuatu, Tonga have all joined an international case launched originally by India and South Africa before the World Trade Organization seeking the TRIPS, uh, you know, intellectual property uh, patents being waived um, for COVID vaccines, given this is a global pandemic with affecting tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, um, that this shouldn't be a matter for profiteering by uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So all of these issues around development, around environment, around health, around recovery from economic recovery from the COVID pandemic are lost in the flurry of headlines, um, about U.S.-China tensions and how they're playing out, remembering, of course, that U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, when he visited the region earlier this year, announced that the U.S. was going to reopen their embassy in the uh, in Solomon Islands, which they closed in 1993.
1: Well, I mean, it seems to me that some of these dynamics could actually work as um, bargaining or negotiation opportunities. I mean, you mentioned the 18-member nation Pacific Island Forum. We know that um, Jacinda Ardern is trying to appeal um, to the relationships in that forum um, to to try and pressure, well, Fiji and PNG in particular, um, to persuade Solomon Islands to end its deal with Beijing. Could Could Pacific Island nations use that same forum to counter pressure uh, on demands related to climate change and COVID in relation to this deal with Beijing? Or, or is, does that just expose my naivety about politics in the region?
3: No, not at all. Um, look, it's important to say that Pacific Island governments are watching all these global issues and engaging with them, you know, how to deal with China as, you know, the second largest economy in the world and a major strategic power in the, in the region. How to deal with global warming and uh, and the uh, the adaptation needs, uh, the, the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. How to deal with violence in the home, in the community, in the workplace. These are all global challenges. And what's been striking is over the last decade or more, a couple of decades, that many Pacific Island governments have said that they want to partner with a whole range of players, Um, the the mantra that's come from Melanesian countries like Papua New Guinea, Solomons, Fiji and others is that they want to be friends to all, enemies to none. Uh, That's the explicit foreign policy of Papua New Guinea, friends to all, enemies to none. And so while they maintain very strong ties to Australia, New Zealand, the United States, the ANZUS um, allies, uh, to France in certain cases, they're also willing to deal with not only China but Taiwan, Korea, Indonesia... Um, The United Arab Emirates, Cuba, uh, Cuba's very active in providing medical officers and medical officer training for Pacific Island countries. Now, in the 20th century, people would have been very reluctant to engage with um, so-called communist nations like China or Cuba, but today, pragmatically, Pacific governments are willing to engage with them. And I think this focus on the China-Solomons deal needs to be put in that context, that Pacific Island microstates are manoeuvring between these great powers and, frankly, playing off the great powers against each other. And so you've seen Australia, in the latest budget, increase uh, the cap of funding from $1.5 billion to $3 billion for the Australia Investment Infrastructure Facility. So this is a, a new body created by the Morrison government to fund infrastructure across the region – and that's a direct response from the infrastructure funding that's come from China, through the Asian investment bank, uh, through the uh, Exim Bank of China, um, through state-owned enterprises, and, and and so on. So, you know, the Solomon Islands and other countries have been willing to uh, engage with these different partners, knowing that the competition can also benefit them as well as disadvantage them. And I think it's it's difficult for small island states. Um, but but they're certainly uh, you know actors in this process rather than simply the victims of uh, the great powers.
1: Well, um, just as we um, come to the the end of the interview, I do have a big question now, a gazing in a crystal ball kind of a question. What's the future of the Pacific given uh, climate change, given pandemics and that likely COVID is not the last pandemic we're going to see, given the realignment of the world's political alliances? How do you see the future of the Pacific?
3: Look, it's a a significant and challenging time, and that's expressed by the um, statements that have come out of the Pacific Islands Forum, like the Boy Declaration, which talks about security, not just framing it through traditional state-to-state national security, but also looking at human security, looking at environmental security. There's a debate going on where Pacific Island countries are trying to reframe the discussion And I think that's the failure of the Australian media coverage of this recent uh, security deal. It's part of a process where Pacific Island countries are saying we have to talk about security in a different way and highlighting that. And that's where there's criticism, for example, of Australia's failure to increase the ambition it has over emissions reductions to halt the export of coal um, and other fossil fuels uh, to to roll back the gas industry, which has been boosted. Um, by the major parties in the in the election. Um, and I think this, this challenge of redefining it is very much because Pacific Islanders are actors on the international stage, increasingly pushing an agenda about different forms of security, about the oceans, about climate change. It's not as if Pacific countries are sitting back, Pacific communities, Pacific governments, Pacific people are sitting back and saying, oh, woe is me. They're actively engaged in as many global forums as they they can to raise their perspectives, to raise their voice about these issues. And um, the problem is that as we move into difficult times, Australia stands apart. One example, you know, when Putin started saber-rattling his nuclear arsenal uh, during the aggression and invasion of Iraq, um, the response of Pacific Island governments was to say, we need to eliminate nuclear weapons uh, through the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and other international agreements, Australia's response under our government was to say, well, we need nuclear submarines and we need to integrate Australia's defence posture further into US nuclear warfighting strategy. So we're both grappling with the same challenge, the militarisation that's going on in Europe at the moment, but the response from our island neighbours is different. And I think that's the challenge for Australians. Can we listen to what our neighbours are saying on these sort of questions and follow their lead? in terms of a new definition of security that doesn't involve the militarisation of our society, as we see uh, under AUKUS at the moment.
1: Yeah, and I also think that some natural um, processes are going to overtake even those political negotiations, climate change particularly, fires, floods, you know, if we do end up in a nuclear war, uh, I, I mean... Anyway, you get what I mean. No, no.
3: These are These are, are significant challenges. Global extinction of biodiversity, the threat to the oceans, which are the lungs of humanity um, in terms of uh, oxygenation and, uh, and carbon uh, um, downloads. Um, there are really big environmental challenges that, that affect, uh, affect people. But I want to stress Pacific governments are at the forefront of putting forward proposals to address this. For example, a loss and damage finance facility uh, has been proposed at the International Climate Negotiations to deal with the effects of cyclones and floods. Australia resisted that at the COP26. Um, if you look what's happening in Australia with the recent flooding in northern New South Wales and Queensland, yeah. you know Pacific Islanders have come up with proposals for action um, that are currently resisted by the fossil fuels, fossil fools, who run our policy making?
1: Well, Nick, thank you so, so much for your time on the show today. Thank you. That was Nick McClellan. He is an expert on the um, Pacific region. Of course, he was a journalist for many years and remains an activist in those politics. We're in the last 10 seconds of the show. Thank you for tuning in. That's it for me, Giselle Hanna. And Jody Pesquet. Coming up next is Palestine Remembered.